You're listening to the Hayek Program podcast. This podcast includes audio from lectures, interviews, and discussions from scholars and visitors of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. To learn more about the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. Hello and welcome to the Hayek Program podcast. Today we have a book panel on Christopher J. Coyne's most recent book, In Search of Monsters to Destroy, The Folly of American Empire and the Paths to Peace, published by the Independent Institute and released in 2022. We'll have Chris talk about the book and then three commentators bring some comments about the book as well. First, we have Christopher Coyne. Dr. Chris Coyne is a professor of economics at George Mason University and the associate director of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics and the director of the Initiative for the Study of Stable Peace at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. He is the author, co-author, or co-editor of 10 books, including his most recent book and the subject of this discussion, In Search of Monsters to Destroy. His work explores the challenges of war, aid, and the incompatibility of attempting to spread liberalism by illiberal means. Then for our panelists, we have Dr. Bill Easterly. He is a professor of economics and the co-director of the Development Research Institute at New York University. He is a renowned expert on economic development. He is the author of three books, and his most recent is The Tyranny of Experts. Dr. Jenny Choi is a senior program director of academic and student programs and a senior fellow with the Hayek program at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Her research delves into the moral and social aspects of markets. She is the co-author of Do Markets Corrupt Our Morals with Virgil Store. Dr. Alex Christianopoulos is a PGT program leader and a reader in politics and international relations at Loughborough University. His expertise is in pacifism, anarchy, and critical security studies. He is the author or co-editor of five books, including his most recent, Tolstoy's Political Thought, Christian Anarcho-Pacifist Econoclasm, Then and Now. We'll start with Chris. Thank you very much. All right, Stephanie. Well, thank you so much for that. And, and thank you all for being here, uh, Bill, Ginny, and, and Alex. I'm very excited to discuss this with you. I'm going to use my time to discuss some of the overarching themes and, and topics in the book, uh, and then we can delve into any details in the comments and, and following discussion. But if I had to sum up kind of the purpose of the book or the motivation behind it, what I'm trying to do and think about is to reconceptualize how we think about empire and foreign policy. Uh, especially as it relates to liberalism. And oftentimes discussions of these issues focus on nation-state activities as public goods, whether it's related to the idea of government-provided security, defense, or in international relations, the idea of a, a rules-based order. And uh, the, the tacit assumption behind the kind of standard way of thinking about these things uh, is, number one, that defense, peace, security, rules are a public good uh, in, the, in the economic sense of the term, that they are non-rivalrous and non-excludable such that private people left up to their own devices cannot provide them in sufficient quantities and qualities. 
Related to that, another tacit kind of presupposition is that absent some kind of central control, usually by, by some hegemon in, in the present day, the United States typically is, is viewed as, as playing that role, the U.S. government, that there's going to be chaos, that there's going to be disorder, that uh, uh, there's going to be great harm unless there's some entity that, that brings order to the world through top-down control. And of course, the, the final tacit presupposition I'll highlight is that empire is a good. The very idea, of course, behind a public good is that all else constant for any economic good, all else constant, more is preferred to less. And one of my goals in the book is to call these uh, tacit presuppositions into question, to think about why it may not be the case that private people are unable or incapable of providing order and rules that govern peaceful interactions, but also to, to bring out the fact that, or highlight the fact, that many of the activities of, of a empire can generate good outcomes for some segments of the global population while generating bads for others. And oftentimes these bads are neglected. And in one of them, I think, is that the, the very idea of a liberal empire is ultimately, I argue, illiberal. But before I delve more into that, let me just say a few words about what I mean when I talk about empire and Amer America as an empire, because that's really at the heart of this. And, uh, you know, there's an academic debate about the definition of empire and whether America fits that definition. But many people across disciplines have described the United States government as a liberal empire with a imperial strategy that is described as liberal hegemony. Historians have, have described the American government like this. Economists have. So economists like Deepak Lal, who wrote a book called In Praise of Empire. Historians, as I mentioned, like Neil Ferguson, who discussed the central role of America in bringing order to the world. But irrespective of the, dis, uh, the discipline, the argument is that the U.S. government has historically and must use its global power. That's military force. That's diplomatic force. That's economic force to exert influence around the world in order to spread, promote, and enforce Western liberal values. And in the book, what I do is break down the history of American empire into, into three phases. And they're not perfect delineations, but I think they neatly capture different uh, kind of errors, if you will, of American history. And, and phase one, what I call phase one of American empire, includes continental expansion, into the early to mid-19th century. And so this is westward expansion, which includes things like the Louisiana Purchase, the Florida Purchase, the annexation of Texas, the Oregon Treaty, Mexican Session in 1848. And then the, the second phase really begins in the late 1800s. And I, I delineate the first phase into the second phase with the Spanish-American War in 1898. And I, I highlight that war as a delineating point because it really marked the start of overseas imperialism, which focused on the broader Western hemisphere. Uh, and of course, in 1904, President Theodore Roosevelt outlined the main tenets of this policy that would become known as the Roosevelt Corollary to the Monroe Doctrine, which had initially been established in 1823. And in addition to specifying his famous idea of this big stick foreign policy, Roosevelt indicated that the U.S. government would serve as the Western, Western Hemisphere's protectorate. So it was the idea of a police state that projected its power, not just domestically, but also internationally beyond its borders, 
in the name of order and security. Then we move on to phase three, which I trace to uh, World War II. And that's really when the United States government expands its, the broadcast of its power beyond just the Western Hemisphere globally. And in the wake of the world wars, uh, what you see is the United States take on or, or fully embrace its role as a global hegemon defined by military primacy and a full-on embrace of the United States government as the world's policeman. Now, I fully recognize that, especially in phase three up to the present, that America has taken on a kind of role as a unique empire. And so historically, empires were defined by conquest and land acquisition and direct governance or government control over that land. And in those first two phases, you certainly see that. In phase three, you certainly see less of that. But nonetheless, what I view the United States government is doing today is using its, its various tools, driven by military primacy, to influence, shape, and manipulate governments and people around the world in order to align with the interests of the political elite in the national security state. From there, what I do is, is delineate the features of present-day American empire. And, and the things I kind of highlight in brief are an imperial national security state, so a massive bureaucratic apparatus that is uh, required to operate this empire, a domestic culture of militarism. And so domestically, militarism can be found throughout American society, from sporting events to education to uh, Hollywood and so on. And all of these things are meant to promote and inculcate in people the idea that, number one, the U.S. military is necessary for the protection of the domestic populace, but also for global order. And that without it, there's going to be uh, not just chaos in the world, but also direct threats to the well-being of American citizens and their interests. The third feature of, of present-day American empire is a permanent war complex. So in addition to having a massive government apparatus, America also has a, a massive military sector, largely defined by private firms and private contractors who partner with the political establishment in order to bring about various military-related ends. And from this standpoint, uh, one of the things I argue in the book is that it has real economic effects. It transforms the nature of the economic system. Uh, away from one of, of competitive markets to one of entanglements between the, the private and public sector. So, so it leads to an economic system that looks much more like the fascist economic systems of the past, where you had direct entanglements between private firms and government in the name of nationalism, in the name of, of pursuing national interests. Then you have things abroad. So what do you have abroad? Military bases around the world, status of force agreements. These are agreements between the American government and host governments that delineate what U.S. troops are allowed to do and what they're not allowed to do, as well as various privileges that are granted to them. You have uh, the use of special operations forces. So in any given year, the United States government deploys special ops to somewhere around 70 to 80 percent of the, the world's countries. Uh, these are small scale missions, but nonetheless, they are interventions in these countries. And you have the use of arms sales. The U.S. government is the largest arms dealer in the world, foreign aid, and geoeconomic policies, things like sanctions, trade policy, and so on, which people tend to think about as, oh, that's part of economic policy. But very quickly, when you delve into it, 
you see that it's entangled with foreign policy and can't be separated from those things. So given that background, let me just say a few words about the foundations of running an empire. And one of the themes in the book is this this idea of what I call the illiberal foundations of of liberal empire. And so what do I mean by that? Well, to begin, just start with liberalism or or the philosophy of freedom or individual freedom is a better way to put it. And, And liberal values emphasize certain things. Individual freedom, a very deep respect for human dignity and intellectual humility and appreciation of of self-determination and voluntary choice, freedom of expression, toleration, pluralism, cosmopolitan values, and spontaneous order uh, or spontaneous orders, emergent orders that are not the result of design. And perhaps most importantly, beyond those things for the purposes of my project, is a commitment to peaceful solutions. It's not a rejection of conflict, but rather an appreciation that conflict is omnipresent But the way we deal with conflict is an object of choice. And certain choices that we make are going to promote violence and violent means to resolving conflict, while other choices that we make can help promote peaceful resolution to conflicts. And one of the arguments I make in the book is that the operation of empire by its very nature is at odds with all of those principles. And and it has to be at odds with those principles. So the, the tension, if you will, is that America and others who advocate for liberal empire do so in the name of promoting liberalism. But the very operation is at odds with that. And so let's think about why that's the case. Well, at its core, a liberal empire and liberal imperialism requires that a very small group of political elites hold fast to the belief that they have both the moral and practical responsibility and ability to shape influence and control other people according to some blueprint that they have in their mind of how the world should look. And what this requires is a certain mindset, what what in the book I call an interventionist mindset. And that mindset has several broad categories to it or, or features. The first is a extreme confidence regarding the ability of interveners to solve complex problems, both at home and abroad. Uh, Second, there's a sense of superiority, a sense of superiority regarding scientific knowledge, regarding preferences, meaning that the preferences of interveners trump those of people in other societies, and of righteousness, that that interveners are on some kind of righteous mission to to bring order and, and freedom to the world. Third, the interventionist mindset requires having limited compassion and sympathy with foreigners, the idea being that rejection of the intervener's plans is not seen from the perspective of the intervener as, well, maybe those being intervened upon don't want the intervention, but rather on uh, some sort of issue or failure on the part of those being intervened upon. You see this repeatedly in the American context across political parties. You have President George W. Bush and President Obama saying things like, we gave Afghani citizens and and Iraqi citizens the chance to be free, as if they rejected it, this gift that was being bestowed upon them. Number four is the idea of the means that are required. And the interventionist mindset requires comfort and an adoption of certain means, often repugnant means, to impose one's goals on other people. Uh, And I'll come back to this in a few moments when I talk about the disjoint between a plan and the realities on the ground and what that ultimately requires. 
Number five, the, the fifth component of the interventionist mindset is great confidence in a massive private public bureaucratic complex, which is required to carry out the intervention. And finally, ultimately, something I mentioned earlier, this mindset requires a deep-seated conviction that order can only occur with state imposition and control. You need top-down state control, or otherwise we're going to be in a situation of anarchy and chaos and misery. And here's the thing. When you start to look at the operation of empire, you realize that there are selection mechanisms in place whereby there's going to be a tendency for the most illiberal people to rise to the top. And the, the reason being is that those that don't possess that interventionist mindset are either going to have to adopt it in order to succeed in the system, or they'll be selected out. They'll either leave because they don't like being part of that system, it brings them discomfort personally, or they'll, they'll be pushed out because they won't uh, succeed in terms of achieving bureaucratic success and kind of objectives that allow for promotion and flourishing in that environment. And so once the system is set up with the objective of bring order to the world, it's going to attract and influence people to adopt those ends such that you get illiberal people. So then what does this mean? Well, it has consequences both at home and abroad. And so one of the things I argue in the book that, that a, a liberal empire breeds illiberalism at home. Uh, how does it do that? Well, the first way it does that is by centralizing an enormous amount of state power. So it undermines the federalist system. Foreign policy is carried out by the national government. And as you expand foreign policy, so too must you expand the bandwidth, resources, and control that the national government has. And very quickly, you see that that undermines federalism, especially when you get things like the war on drugs, the war on terror, whereby the battleground is the entire globe. And so it's not just you're intervening in some foreign society, but also domestically, there could be people involved in drug supplying and drug dealing or terrorism. Everyone's a suspect. And so that necessitates an awesome expansion in state power at home. On top of that, you need the technologies in order to carry that out at home. So what do you get? You get a massive surveillance state. You get the militarization of police domestically, and so on. And so it is very hard to separate a proactive militaristic foreign policy that is projected abroad from domestic life. Now, what about what happens when you go abroad? Well, one of the things I try to emphasize in the book is that what you're going to get when you go abroad is a small group of people who have an awesome, awesome amount of discretionary power over the lives of other human beings. And a full stock taking or appreciation of this requires one to look at uh, uh, both the epistemics or knowledge aspects required in running the world and the incentives. And I walk through in great detail in the book, but I'll only mention a little bit of it here, how these constraints might play out when you're intervening abroad. And so when we think about epistemics, government, when you expand the scale of it, so here we're thinking literally at the highest scale, a one government projecting onto other societies abroad, you're going to have general top-down policies, which necessarily lack nuance in local context. And what happens is when you have this significant knowledge distance, and by knowledge distance, I don't mean physical distance. I mean the connection between the social understanding of the world, 
of people being intervened upon and those who are intervening, whether it's foreigners or foreigners working through a national government, which often takes place, there's going to lack that context-specific information. So what's going to happen? Oftentimes, there'll be a disjoint between the realities on the ground and the plans of the political elite who are intervening. So then what do you do? One option is to step off, is to leave. That rarely happens. Then you're kind of pushed into a corner where you have to force the outcome. And how do you force the outcome? You resort to force or the threat thereof. So the kind of illustration I used to think of this is imagine two puzzle pieces. And imagine puzzle pieces that fit together. You can just put them together and they'll go together quite easily. But when you try to put two piece puzzle pieces together that don't fit together, it requires you to force it. You have to push down with pressure with your, your thumb or your hand in order to jam those together. Oftentimes they pop apart because they're not meant to be together and it requires continual force. So think about a situation where you have an underlying cultural context, historical context that doesn't comport with the plan of interveners. They're going to be required to, to replace voluntary compliance with force. What else do you have? Well, in terms of, of feedback loops, you have very crude feedback between interveners and people on the ground. And the reason why is uh, there's just loose connections. There's not a tight connection between the ability of people who are being inter intervened upon to express their preferences, to express their dislike or satisfaction with various policies. Remember that these people are outside of the polity of the government that, that is intervening upon them. So they are not citizens of the government. So even if, if voting and other democratic checks are weak, at least it's something, they're completely absent in the case of, of foreign interventions that are associated with empire. And so ultimately what this is going to mean is you're going to have poor epistemics, poor accountability, and poor feedback. You're going to get the persistence of ineffective and harmful policies because the people who are intervening do not have the knowledge or the incentive to change, and they don't incur the cost of, of, of not changing their behavior, of continuing with what they're doing. In fact, in many cases, they incur a greater cost from changing their course of behavior whether it's because of resource flows or because of appearances of failing in their mission and how that looks internationally and domestically and so on. So those are some of the key kind of diagnostics, I'll call them. They, they are the, the key issues with operating an empire. Now, what does that mean in terms of where that leaves us? So, so given those diagnostics, let me say a few words about what I'll call therapeutics or, or what do we do about this? And one of the things I come back to at the end of the book in the, in the concluding portion is, is kind of a plea to the reader to reconsider what peace is and how it comes about. There's a tendency among economists, among political scientists, even among some historians, I would say, to view peace as an end state, as an aggregate end state rather than as an ongoing process. Think about the kind of language people often use. That is a peaceful society. That is a violent society, as if the society is, is acting as a whole, and it's a zero-one, it's a binary. They're either peaceful or they're violent, as if that's some final state of affairs. What I want to argue and, 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 and prod the reader to think about is this idea of peacemaking, peacemaking a term being a proactive action that occurs in an ongoing, continuous, kind of open-ended world but also in different contexts. And in some sense, you know, this is straightforward. If we just think about our, our everyday lives, rather than thinking about the world, we realize that on a daily basis, we all face numerous conflict situations 
even at the smallest scales with our, our loved ones, our friends, our colleagues, and we have to navigate those. And of course, we can navigate those violently or peacefully. And many of us navigate them peacefully. And then we can scale that up to think about lots of different contexts. And once you start appreciating this point, you recognize that the idea that peace being only associated with governments, only associated with the nation state, only coming through top-down control, couldn't be further from the truth when we compare it to the empirics of everyday life, which is that peace comes from the bottom up in many cases, uh, in a majority of cases, I would argue. And so what I'm trying to get people to think about is not that nation states don't exist. Of course they do. Not that nation states are important in the current political setting. Of course they are. But rather by exclusively focusing on the nation state, we miss two key things. One is that in a liberal society, ordinary people are supposed to be the captains of the political ship. They're the, they're the ones that are supposed to be driving things. The citizenry are supposed to, to, to be the source of, of power. But when we hand things over to the nation state, we say the nation state must bring order or else, we're turning over all power to a group of political elite. We are inverting the relationship of, uh, of a self-governing democratic society from one where the polity, ordinary people drive things to one where the political elite drive how society looks and should look. The second thing we miss is that peace is heterogeneous and diverse that the way we conceptualize peace is not as some single hierarchy of ends. It's not some final state of rest, but rather a range of diverse actions and interactions where people learn and continually relearn and experiment how to live peacefully with other people. And so in the book where I end up is arguing that, that it's really important to both appreciate and think about what type of moves political moves or policy moves or, or even non-political moves can be made to empower ordinary people to engage in peacemaking and how liberal empire limits these opportunities. It limits these bottom-up opportunities by privileging top-down state planning and elevating militarism as the primary means of human interaction. And so the alternative is to empower people to engage in bottom-up peacemaking. Now, I understand that this alternative is difficult for many people to envision. It's difficult for them to envision because they tend to see empire and militarism as a more legitimate and serious response to challenges in the world, somewhat because it stands before them. They, they see nation states, they see military activity, and they say it must be like that. It has to be like that. And, and from that perspective, it's almost comforting in that it offers them certainty where nonviolence, non-state options, bottom-up peace are often viewed as naive. They're viewed as soft. They're viewed as wishful and utopian. But what I want to argue is that militarism and empire come with absolutely no guarantee of beneficial certainty. In fact, I think we have good reason to believe just the opposite, that there are many dynamics that will lead militarism and empire to promote chaos, to promote violence in stark contrast to how people normally conceive these things. So ultimately, where I come down in the book and where I end is to say, look, uh, 
hope for peace ultimately rests in our ability to imagine futures that are previously unimagined. And that involves allowing people to engage in a learning process of exploration and studying the the possible ways of organizing society, which are different than a single homogenous, top-down kind of nation-state empire vision of the world. And one of the things I like about that vision is that it offers us a potential stable peace that doesn't rely on top-down coercion. It allows us to view other human beings as equals rather than viewing kind of vertical relationships, which empire necessitates. And I fully admit that that alternative also doesn't guarantee a certainty of peace, but it does offer a possibility of peace grounded in liberal values. And this stands in sharp contrast to liberal empire, which necessarily discards liberal values from the start in the name of advocating for those things. And so my hope is that this book contributes to advancing that that vision of an alternative way of peacemaking and empowering people to pursue peace in a way that allows them to live as uh, dignified equals uh, uh, who are able to engage in social cooperation that is peaceful while fully recognizing that we will never fully escape conflict and violence because that is a part of, of human life and human existence. Thank you again for the opportunity to speak with you, and I look forward to hearing your thoughts. Thanks, Chris. Bill? So the the main point I want to make in my comment on Chris's book is that you should all read this book. (laughs) That's my first and maybe my only point that I want to get across to you. Uh, I've been waiting for this book for over 20 years since I first became very dismayed right after 9-11 to see that how development, the field of economic development was shifting into the business of what was called soon after 9-11 called fixing failed states. It was an idea that was endorsed by a number of social scientists, economists, political scientists, uh, but I think has been uh, simply a disastrous idea. And uh, it gained uh, much more prominence and purchase than it should have. And so I've been waiting for a long time for somebody like Chris to come along and uh, encounter that that disastrous idea. And uh, reading this book, there are just so many delight, delightful parts. I mean, did you know that the U.S. military has 500 military sites all over the world in other countries? That's just astonishing. It's far beyond what you think, what you would have thought, even if you were aware of American American military overreach. Chris has this great line that uh, failed states often arise because of earlier imperialism. So uh, development has gotten into the business of interventions to fix failed states, which were the consequence of earlier interventions, which is a vicious circle that never ends. And, you know, I think Chris is in a very distinguished tradition of liberalism, of the liberal critique of, of empire that goes back a long way, such as uh, a guy named Adam Smith. <laughs> not not everyone realizes that Adam Smith was a very fierce critic of empire, of European empire. In The Wealth of Nations, he has this phrase, the savage injustice of the Europeans, referring to the, the conquest of the Americas that had been ruinous and destructive to several of those unfortunate countries. He lamented that there could have been a peaceful alternative, which uh, Chris is highlighting for us, 
Adam Smith stressed especially that trade, consensual, positive sum gains from trade could have been a peaceful alternative to the interaction between the old and the new continents. Smith said there could have been a new set of exchanges which would naturally have proved as advantageous to the new continent as they did to the old continent. And Adam Smith, of course, was uh, one of the liberal founders of the idea that rejects all the, the things that Chris doesn't like and offers the alternative liberal values. So Adam Smith re rejects the coercion that I just quoted. He offers consent through trade. Adam Smith said, every man is first and principally recommended to his own care. It is fit and right that it should be so. He rejects paternalism for self-determination. And uh, an, another critical liberal value that Adam Smith asserts is equality. Every, every man is left perfectly free to pursue his own interests his own way, without drawing distinctions between different groups of races or level of development or classes. He asserts equality for everyone. And so the, the ideas that Chris are talking about, the imperialism idea, are offering this sort of toxic combination of coercion, paternalism, and inferiority. And not surprisingly, the, uh, these ideas have been almost universally rejected by other peoples. And uh, the, the way that liberalism sometimes gets tangled up in those ideas has probably hurt more than anything else the cause of liberalism. But that liberal sort of gospel of anti-imperialism was carried through through people like Benjamin Constant in the early 1820s when he criticized Napoleon's attempt to conquer Russia in the name of civilization, to uh, William Graham Sumner in the late 19th century led the campaign against colonization of the Philippines, un unsuccessfully resisted the colonization of the Philippines, but William Graham Sumner did so very much in the name of anti-paternalism you know, pro-trade. Uh, Ludwig von Mises emphatically condemned colonialism in the early part of the 20th century. He has you know, amazingly sort of fierce language. A great quote from William Graham Sumner uh, criticizing American colonization of the Philippines. He's, he says, what this amounts to is we know what is good for you better than you know yourself. and We are going to make you do it. That's sort of exactly the impulse of imperialism, like it is of a lot of anti-liberal ideologies. And that, in the name of fighting that toxic ideology, is the, is the fight against imperialism that Chris is carrying on so, so nobly. Uh, Ludwig von Mises in 1927 said, the final goal must continue to be the complete liberation of the colonies from the despotic rule under which they live today. It's kind of a, amazing how, how fierce some of the liberals have been on this and how much their ideas have been forgotten, that the, that the liberal economists were very much involved in this. And this, the Smith quote that I like best of all is when he made a remarkable prophecy about how someday maybe commerce could replace conquest, that consent could replace coercion. In The Wealth of Nations, he, he said, the inhabitants, this is an uh, exact quote, the inhabitants of all the different quarters of the world may arrive at that equality of courage and force which can alone overawe the injustice of independent nations into some sort of respect for the rights of one another. So that's the world that, that Chris wants to see. And Adam Smith said one of the main ways this would happen would be, quote, in an extensive commerce from all countries to all countries. So Smith prophesied that the, he thought this would actually happen someday. And Chris, I think, 
points out the ways in which that has not happened, but uh, maybe to reassure ourselves and cheer ourselves up a little bit, it's notable that in a lot of ways, Adam Smith's prophecy did, did happen. So colonialism did mostly disappear. Commerce between the, the West and the rest surged dramatically to be in the trillions of dollars today, from starting from almost nothing in Adam Smith's time. And, you know, a lot of liberal values have, have made huge advances. This, uh, slavery disappeared, communism, dis- Stalinist communism disappeared, apartheid disappeared, all these sort of toxic ideologies based on the kind of coercion that Chris is denouncing have seen, uh, you know, the gradual end of the most illiberal values. So I hope Chris is uh, successful now in carrying the liberal cause forward into limiting some of the remaining ways in which U.S. imperialism is still violating these liberal ideas. And you know, going back to the world of, of economic development, I think what's what's sad about the the capture of development by uh, by the sort of imperialistic ideas, the idea of fixing failed states and nation building and all that is that you know it made development work even worse than it was working already. So development was development aid was also already working pretty badly, but after nine eleven. Uh, there's a lot of reason to think it got even worse because after 9/11, if you divide up all the world's countries into four groups ranked by order of, by by level of economic and political freedom, the least free fourth of countries had a 300% increase in their annual aid receipts after after 9/11. All the other three quarters of the world's aid recipients got a 35% increase. So it's pretty obvious that that happened for the reasons Chris is talking about that. Uh, that the, the idea of fighting the war on terror and giving aid to allies in the war on terror and the delusions of fixing failed states uh, led to this huge shift of aid into places where it even is less likely to work well and even more likely to actually cause harm. And a lot of uh, researchers have documented the way in which aid into conflict societies actually makes the conflict worse and, and causes actual harm. So I, I hope Chris is, is successful in this campaign to persuade sort of policymakers to shift away from these these failed ideas, destructive ideas. And I think it's also extremely important for the overall fate of liberalism in the world today that that there there's uh, some reversal on this tendency towards imperialism. But here's a quote that I really liked from from Chris's book. He notes that indigenous people in, in the Americas, many of them despise liberal capitalism because in their view it is associated with a brutal oligarchy military complex that has been supported by U.S. policies and armies. The ideological backlash against U.S.-style economic and political institutions make any movement towards sustainable liberal institutions that much more difficult and unlikely. And I think that's exactly right. And this is continuing this this, uh, long-standing damage to the cause of Western liberalism when the West did get involved so much in in colonialism and interventions in Latin America and, and, and elsewhere. And it continues to to be very relevant today. I don't know if you've if you've read some of Putin's speeches justifying the war in Ukraine. Putin constantly refers to the history of Western colonialism. He constantly refers to U.S. interventions in Iraq and Afghanistan and Libya and Syria, you know, as justifications for his his uh, intervention into Ukraine, saying you you know you guys are hypocrites. 
you condemn uh, our our intervention, but you're intervening right and left, and you have been for decades and centuries. So that that definitely does damage to the cause of, of liberal values and the, the cause of uh, peaceful self-determination of, of countries that are conquered by, by tyrants like by Putin. Xi Jinping makes the same kind of references to Western humiliation of China in justifying his aggressive stance towards towards Taiwan today and may justify a future invasion of Taiwan that would be deep, deeply, deeply tragic. So where do we where do we stand now? You know, I, I hope that that we will have more success in in kind of fighting back against the delusions of ideas like fixing failed states. And in some ways, those those ideas did start to lose a lot of power after the, the fall of Afghanistan, the tragic the tragic fall of Kabul to the Taliban. And, you know, nobody wanted that to happen, but uh, it was inevitable because of the, the way the policy was so, so badly designed and was such a badly conceived idea from the beginning. And there's there seemed a, like a, a few months of, of hope after after that, that the U.S. policymakers had finally come to their senses and no longer would have tried these sort of aggressive interventions overseas. And then, you know, only a few months later, there's suddenly the U.S. is intervening on the side of Ukraine and in in the war against Russia, which admittedly is a lot more difficult case. And I'd be interested to hear Chris talk more about how Ukraine is sort of a more difficult case than than Afghanistan was for deciding, you know, is is U.S. kind of military intervention in Ukraine in the form of massive military aid to Ukraine? Is that a, is that a good or a bad idea? It's it's not as easy a, a thing to resolve as it was in Afghanistan, in which it was, just, it was just a delusion from the beginning in, in Afghanistan. But in Ukraine, you don't have a Taliban fighting back against the U.S. You have a lot of widespread domestic support for for U.S. U.S. military uh, intervention from the part of, from the standpoint of most of the Ukrainian population. And you know they are arguably fighting in in self defense against uh, an invader. It's not a case of the delusion of spreading development through military intervention as it was in Iraq and Afghanistan. It's more you know helping a nation fight in self defense. So that one, I guess I have to say to be fair, you know I probably the answer is just the U.S. cannot be trusted to do any military interventions and should just stop. But to be fair, I think we have to acknowledge that's a more difficult case. Is there a case that, you know, sort of free nations should sort of be allied with each other to just for the purposes of self-defense against tyrants like, you know, Putin and Xi Jinping? Is there is there a case for that kind of alliance that would purely be from the standpoint of self-defense? I'm not sure. I don't know the answer. I hope Chris can figure it out because I don't think I can. You know, self-defense is, is a justification, is, is maybe the only good justification ever for mil- for military action is in self-defense against an invader. And maybe there is a role for kind of alliances that, that uh, support each other in self-defense against a common, a common enemy and illiberal enemies like Putin and Xi. Maybe there is. I'm, I'm not sure we know the answer, but I guess in the spirit of humility, I guess I would say economists. Uh, I have to admit that this is a hard question. I'm not sure we know the answer. I also would like to see, frankly, economists have more of a role in this discussion, and I hope Chris is successful in getting more of a role. It seems like the state of the discussion has been that the, the military experts want to advise us on development, but they don't want the economic development experts to advise them on the military. So it's a startling lack of reciprocity that they, 
they think that they can go ahead and say what their favorite development ideas are and policymakers will listen to them. And when economists sort of criticize the military agenda, then no one is listening, frankly. And that's been a great frustration that I've I've had over over many years, whenever I make a feeble attempt to comment on uh, how bad military intervention is, uh, people just want to talk about aid. <laughs> they just want to talk about how bad aid is and how stupid aid is and the follies of aid. They don't want to talk about U.S. military intervention. The, there's some sort of feeling that economists are qualified to talk about aid, but not about military intervention. So I hope you have a, a better way, uh, Chris, of gaining access to that debate. And above all, I, I salute you for this wonderful book that you have done. It's in such a great cause. You're such a worthy heir to this long liberal anti-imperialist tradition that I, that I was sketching out. And I wish you great luck in advancing this this cause. Thank you, Bill. Jenny? Yeah, um, I wanted to begin by thanking uh, the Hayek program and the academic and student programs at the Mercator Center for inviting me to participate in this book panel. And of course, much of the gratitude has to go to Chris for writing on what I believe is an incredibly important book and one that I immensely enjoyed uh, reading. I have long thought that his work um, is super powerful and persuasive. And over the years, each time he publishes a new book, I have thought and shared enthusiastically with our friends um, how much I loved his book and how much his latest book is my favorite one. So now that he's literally published a new book every year, our friends and colleagues now know that I am not a person to be believed. And whatever my word is uh, worth now, In Search of Monsters to Destroy is my favorite book uh, by Chris. And like Bill already mentioned, I think this is an incredibly important book that everyone should read. In Search of Monsters is, uh, in my view, the latest book in Chris's research on the political economy of foreign interventions and his research on in particular, the efforts of the U.S. government to engender change in other societies through a variety of interventions. And his message, at least the one that rings loudest for me, is precisely this. Our freedom is under threat. And our freedom is not only under threat by, um, is not under threat by an outside entity. And in fact, it's worse. Uh, we're under threat by the entity at home that has long purported to defend us that we thought was meant to protect us, our government. And it has been chipping away at our freedom for years, decades, right under our noses, under the guise of protecting us from foreign threats, protecting our interests abroad. And they have done so not only by withholding information from us and keeping us in the dark about its activities, its performance, et cetera, et cetera, which is bad alone. Um, no, they actively lied to us and manipulated us, and they continue to beat the drums of war to garner our support and, dare I say, enthusiastic support for war against terror and for their efforts um, to export democracy and freedom around the world. They have cultivated this mindset of imperialism and this culture of militarism that has sadly and alarmingly has become synonymous with the American identity. In his last chapter titled Rethinking Empire, Chris discussed the importance of shifting our focus from a culture of militarism to cultures of peace. And what I wanted to do for the remainder of my time is to offer uh, one possible way to foster peace and a culture of peace. And in particular, for those who are familiar with Chris's work and also the work of the higher program scholars, as well as my work with Virgil Storr, 
Um, it's probably not surprising what I'm about to share, but one I think it's still incredibly important. Um, and it's one that I think it continues to be underappreciated by academics, policymakers, and frankly, by everyone. And it's this idea of the market and its capacity to foster peace and a culture of peace. I think a part of the reason why the market or commerce or businesses or, business, uh, or firms or capitalism, whatever, whatever word you want to put there, the reason why it's not believed to be a path to peace and peacefulness is because it is primarily understood as a zero-sum game an endless dogfight over um, profits. Um, communitarians have long, um, also long worried about the expansion of the market into realms where it doesn't belong. And it's, um, they have said for a very long time that the growth of the market and its values come at the expense of our community and social connections with one another. That social bonds would dissolve and turn into rivalry as communities fragment into bodies of competitors and as loyalty transforms in, into self-interest. Other critics of the market have also worried that the market encourages vice, how, for instance, it channels individual greed into something more socially beneficial, and it turns us into, to borrow Marx's words, into spiritual and physical monsters. And indeed, the way commerce is often talked about is through the framing of winners and losers. And it's implied that if someone wins, it automatically means somebody or maybe everyone else loses. And in this world, the market participants are morally atrocious human beings who are not only concerned about profits and themselves and are understood to be willing to abandon their trading partners, friends, family, um, so long as it means that they will earn even a truly more profit. The market, as uh, the critics say, transforms us into emotionless, compassionless, uncompromising, friendless, and calculating beings. And the market is a space populated precisely by these kinds of people. Market process theorists have emphasized um, the market as a space where market actors discover a great deal of information, in particular economic information such as prices and profit opportunities. It is also where market actors are capable of learning about their environments and their trading partners. For instance, Hayek wrote about how competition teaches people who will serve them well. Kirsner wrote about how people learn from their experiences in the market and adjust their plans and um, expectations accordingly. And Lavoy believed that the market renders otherwise unusable, inarticulate knowledge into usable information discoverable by market actors who can best put it to use. Combined, insights from market process theorists suggest that from the sheer act of buying, selling, and pursuing their own plans in the market, market actors learn new information about goods, services, and their trading partners with whom they interact. And furthermore, they also learn something about the market environment by observing others' behaviors and actions with other people. For instance, the market can help us locate and find where we can purchase a particular good or service of a particular uh, quality at a cheap price. Uh, but an alternative way of framing that would be that it reveals to us who provides or produces a particular good or service at a relatively cheap price without sacrificing quality. Additionally, we also form impressions about the people with whom we interact and observe in the market. Uh, for instance, that so-and-so is detailed-oriented or is honest or has failed to deliver what they have promised or always works diligently and conscientiously or tends to overcharge for their services and products are untrustworthy. All of these things can often be readily observed, discerned, and then conveyed to others. And what we share, and we share what we experience and observed uh, with our friends, 
and even with strangers through platforms such as Yelp and by leaving reviews on Google and Amazon. In other words, the market can teach us about our trading partners by one, allowing us to learn about them directly firsthand um, through direct interactions, and two, by allowing us to share our experiences and hear about others' experiences, i.e. through indirect interactions. Now, extending the work of the market process theory, in my view, uh, the market can foster a culture of peace in at least two ways. First, the market is a conversation about right and wrong. Lavoie had once phrased the market as um, a dialogue, and it could help us discover the types of behaviors, actions, attitudes, orientations that we find acceptable as a society that we want to project as a community. And the market is capable of rewarding these acceptable behaviors, desirable behaviors, through profits and punishes others through losses. And in this manner, the market can distinguish between the moral and the immoral, the trustworthy from the untrustworthy, the friendly from the unfriendly, and in this particular case, the peaceable from the unpeaceable. And taking a step further uh, from that, Watching how the trustworthy, the friendly, the peaceable is rewarded in the market with profits, the marginally untrustworthy, unfriendly, unpeaceable will be incentivized to behave in similar manners. And watching these marginally immoral people being rewarded for behaving morally, those who are again marginally more immoral from the original marginally immoral people will also be incentivized to behave morally. And over time, the market can teach those who may have not been inherently prone to um, peaceableness to become more peaceable. And it can teach those who tend to be disagreeable and more prone to conflict to become less disagreeable and less prone to conflict. Second, the market often puts us in contact with dissimilar others. For instance, in his seminal paper on the market as a social space, Virgil wrote about how markets are spaces where meaningful economic and extra-economic conversations can occur and argued how we develop close personal friendships in market settings that have social significance beyond our willingness to um, just simply buy and sell. By bringing dissimilar others into our orbit and by allowing us to interact with them directly and indirectly, by allowing us to learn more about their cultures, their sensibilities, their beliefs, um, et cetera, et cetera, we get to know so many of these dissimilar others, learn to become more tolerant of perhaps views that would have been radically different without this particular exposure, dispel any fears that might have stemmed from not, us not knowing anything about dissimilar people, and form relationships and friendships with people who we, might, who we might otherwise not have had the occasion to know just um, in the market setting, and, as, um, and also in non-market social settings. And indeed, some of these um, empirical investigations that Virgil and I have done in our book, Do Markets Corrupt Our Morals, showed how residents of societies where the market operates relatively unhindered were more accepting of other people who are radically different from themselves and less accepting of violence um, than those residents, uh, those residents of societies where the market is a little bit more uh, restricted. In short, if we truly believe that one, the market is a space where desirable behaviors, actions, attitudes, and orientations can be taught. Two, 
people are capable of compassion and charity and capable of learning and becoming empowered to exercise their um, agency. Three, if human beings, uh, if we truly believe that people are triply embedded within the economy, polity, and society, and that people largely show up as themselves no matter what social space that they occupy. It must follow that people can be taught to be peaceful and to extend their habits of peacefulness to even those who are socially distant from themselves and who in other circumstances they would have not had the occasion to interact with, and that the market can and foster a culture of peace. With that, I will end my remarks there and turn the floor over to Alex. Thank you so much again for inviting me for this book panel. And thank you so much, Chris, for writing this incredibly important book. Thank you, Jenny. Alex? Okay, so thank you. Uh, thanks a lot. Uh, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for the invitation to, to read comment on this book. I like how great to read it is, how well written it is, how clear and convincing an argument it makes. Um, it, 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 offers, it's, it offers, from my perspective, an economic reading of the terrible imp impact of empire, which is original and welcome. I'm familiar with a lot of criticisms of empire, but not so much in the language of economics, as it were and clearly makes a convincing case for why liberal empire works against liberal aims. The book, I think, possibly resonated with me also, because Chris and myself seem to have had a few similar triggers or bits of academic journeys that are shared, by which I mean my BA was in economics, although I then moved to international relations and European studies, partly out of frustration with some of what I was taught uh, and out of interest in the politics of it all, and my MA finished, the final exam was during 9-11. We didn't know the planes had hit the towers. They, that had happened 10 minutes before we went in. Three hours later, we come out and you know, the world has changed or has it. So that, in a way, was also a trigger for my academic journey. It's after that that I decided to sort of examine some of these questions. And our academic journeys, I think, with Chris, reveal some overlapping research interests. I mean, I'm ultimately interested in um, when and why violence is legitimate, when or why the state might be legitimate or not. I'm interested in the critique of, of the war system, and I'm interested in how effective nonviolence can be both in dissent and in policy, which is why the book resonated with my interest, especially in, now I'll say those words, anarchism and pacifism. Seeing that both terms do appear in the book, but only in the endnotes, uh, with this intervention, I want to spell out and explore a bit further the ways in which uh, the book resonates, I think, with anarchism and with pacifism, but also how both traditions can contribute to and develop the analysis presented in the book. So in terms of anarchism, uh, let me put it out there. Anarchism is an ideology that's often summarized as anti-state, but it's much broader than that. Most anarchists would want to define it more broadly than that. And these days, there's something of a consensus in describing it as a committed critique to all forms of all forms of domination. So Chris shows how the big state can attract waste and cronyism, but many anarchists would add that the state also underwrites wider intersectional structures and practices of domination and exploitation, be it around class, gender, race, etc. And so, yes, from an anarchist perspective, eradicating drugs through war or a ban, what Chris explores in Chapter 5, will always be ineffective. Uh, yes, from an anarchist perspective, empire is dangerous because, and I quote Chris, there are people in the world who are cruel, violent, and vainglorious, although he's quoting others in those words. 
Um, and as such, again, quote, people with these undesirable characteristics, unquote, exist across the world, including as top administrators of empire. But anarchism also provides arguments against the grotesque accumulation of wealth or property when many elsewhere might live in poverty, among other things, because that generates seeds of revolt. For anarchists, great, great concentrations of power and wealth are unjust and unstable, whether concentrated in central political power or in a small pool of wealthy elites just like Jefferson worried about when alluding to the aristocrats of Venice, as, as Chris mentions in, in chapter two. Many anarchists would hesitate with the claims that the market is the only way to facilitate economic development. Uh, let's be honest, many anarchists would hesitate with that, as is implied in, in chapter four, and as I know to be a common view in, 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 in a number of circles in, in economics. Other, other models may have enviable track records in overall wealth as well as wealth distribution, including market-correcting social democratic models, which anarchists would have little time for, but also, although usually these are on smaller scales, all sorts of collective local projects, including collective and democratic forms of planning, as it were, which anarchists would be much more sympathetic to. Now, either way, anarchism also points to the importance of what others have called positive peace. It's, uh, it's a whole area of literature, which I guess some of you might be familiar with, but which requires not some central planning, uh, but perhaps a form of collective planning, at least, from an anarchist perspective. So um, something that doesn't resolve itself through some sort of invisible hand. Otherwise, anarchists, many anarchists, would worry that the same drivers that can cause political power to expand and dominate, like an authoritarian monopoly, risk doing the same in the economy. After all, the slippery slope towards cronyism discussed in the third chapter of the book involves a dance of political and economic actors and interests. Anarchists are not particularly reassured or sure that the same economic actors, at their government partners, wouldn't continue to work for their own profit to the detriment of others, the, the latter being the kibit, uh, without any political or regulatory oversight. So. It's just that for that oversight not to benefit only some central planners, the planning for anarchists should be collective, truly democratic, horizontal. Corrupting that structure, after all, would benefit the entire coll collective, since the entire collective is involved in it, as it were, not just a few representatives and the bureaucrats they set up. It's remembering also that anarchism elevates, I guess, what you could describe as liberal freedom as high as what you could describe as socialist equality, with equal passion. Anarchism is the ideology that does not want to compromise one over the other, that argues that this, there does not have to be a trade-off, which is also why quite a few anarchists view what's described as economic neoliberalism with suspicion, because they want to emphasize the importance of, now, I don't know, yeah, let's call it equality, human dignity, and for the collective, although the bottom-up horizontal collective as well. So certainly all anarchists distrust the state as a protector. They're worried about abuses of power, about the self-reinforcing dynamics of centralization and authoritarianism. Anarchism, in a way, preaches a constant alertness to institutionalizations of dominance and exploitation. And so anarchism resonates, I think, also with Chris's appeal for, and I quote, global engagement grounded in values, beliefs, and behaviors promoting mutual caring, respect, 
and human well-being, unquote, and with what Chris calls a polycentric centrism, which empowers citizens to exercise individual agency, creativity, and collective problem-solving. That resonates with anarchism. Models of polycentric governance of the kind by Chris will therefore be appealing, presumably, uh, models of governance for anarchists who distrust governance models designed by supposed experts from the top down and much prefer horizontal approaches that shape governance models from the bottom up based on local knowledge and empowerment. What such models of governance would look like scaled up from the local to the global can be found in some of the scholarship there's out there on Kropotkinian mutual aid, for example, Proudhonian mutualism and federalism, or other anarchist analysis of the international order, uh, which, which I can, well, uh, cite later on if you want. As for resonances with pacifism, as the second chapter of the book illustrates, war leads to authoritarianism. Pacifists similarly argue that violence is constitutive, and I quote Richard Jackson here, political violence constitutes society through the institutionalization of the war system and the normalization of the resort to violence as an essential part of politics, unquote. As I point out in a recent piece of mine, summarizing actually the work of Ned Dobos, uh, one of the co-editors in, in the Journal of Pacifism and Nonviolence, which we launched earlier in the year, it is worth paying attention to what the establishment of a permanent army does to society. The moral damage to citizens who are conditioned into soldiers, the risks of coup d'etat, the attracting of preemptive attacks, the consequences of ill-advised militaristic, militaristic hubris, and the leaking of militaristic mindsets onto civilian life and culture, unquote. War leads even the more democratic and participatory movements towards increasing authoritarianism. Pacifists have also long worried about the predictable self-reinforcing dynamics of arms races, including to decry any excitement about the acquisition of the latest technology against the enemy, because any strategic advantage will be short-lived and overall tensions will be heightened in the end. So Chris' sixth chapter shows how terribly problematic drones are. The Ukraine conflict has demonstrated how much more widespread they are now. The others in the race have caught up. They followed the US lead. The seventh chapter of Chris's book also discusses the potential of nonviolent action. This potential is true in dissent or disobedience, but also with nonviolent responses to security challenges, however challenging it is to think along those lines. So there is, for example, interesting literature on what's called civilian-based or social defense, and there's literature on unarmed peacekeeping and unarmed civilian agency in armed conflict, including uh, the second issue of, our, of the Journal of Pacifism and Nonviolence, which is a special issue dedicated uh, to that specifically. More generally, Gene Sharp, American uh, political scientist, famously listed in 1973, 198 methods of nonviolent resistance, escalating from symbolic protests, speeches, petitions, posters, to non-cooperation, consumer boycotts, refusals to pay, boycotting elections, slow compliance, to intervention, which might involve civil disobedience, hunger strikes, nonviolent occupations. Others have been tried since, and internet has opened up more possibilities. The point is there are plenty of nonviolent tools that we often overlook when security responses automatically default to violence. Pacifists 
and I'm nearing the end, also point out that violence rarely works, whether bottom-up or top-down, contrasting the comparative record of violence and non-violence in terms of effectiveness, it's arguably the practitioners of violence, not the pacifists, who are the tragic idealists, as Howes famously put it. So the literature on non-violence often speaks of two different sets of traditional arguments for non-violence, pragmatic or strategic non-violence and ethical or principled non-violence. I think arguably a third category is religious arguments, and it's work I've done elsewhere before that leads towards Christianism, but that's a different debate for a different day. I think what Chris is pointing to is a fourth grounding, which is the economic arguments. Non-violence is more economically sound. So I think it's a valuable addition to the growing literature, to the growing research in pacifism and non-violence, this book. It articulates its message in language that should resonate with economics, with many Americans, especially, including many supporters of liberalism who tend to be attracted to empire, by pitting the arguments of the former against the track record of the latter. It also resonates with, and can be further enriched by, the scholarship on anarchism and pacifism. Now, liberals, anarchists, and pacifists do not speak the same way. Their ultimate aims might sometimes diverge, but along the way, they often develop arguments in parallel to one another. Identifying and pooling their diverse views and arguments can strengthen the arguments they share and demonstrate the potential strength of solidarities and alliances across ideological divides when working to indicate or at least minimize violence. So I'm grateful to Chris for articulating in this book a set of arguments that enrich, from an economic perspective, the critique of violence, of centralized management, and of empire. Thank you, Chris, and thanks for inviting me to share my thoughts about how and where the book resonates with anarchism and with fascism. Let's all remain alert to the risk when fighting scary monsters of creating dangerous monsters of our own. Thank you, Alex. Chris, would you like to respond? Yeah, thank you, Stephanie. First, let me thank all three of you again. I'm, I'm honored you took the time. I know you're all busy and both to read the book and, and for your thoughtful comments. I, I truly appreciate it. I, I will say a couple words about what what each person mentioned and, and actually try to tie them together. Because I, I, as I was taking notes, I thought of some themes that I think run throughout and, and challenges too with both the book, but the broader project. Bill, thank you very much for the comments. And, and you know, you, you do raise an excellent point about these cases where it's not clear cut. And I, I am with you in saying that there are many cases, both conceptually or practically. You mentioned Ukraine. You could also mention the, the, the ongoing conflict with Israel. These are difficult cases. And I don't think there's a simple solution. I think part of what comes out of this view of framing things, meaning both from liberalism, but also from the an appreciation for complexity and nuance in the world, that there's always not going to be a, an easy answer. But I do think we can say some things. And so I believe certainly in self-defense. I am skeptical of alliances and arguments for self-defense between nation states. My, my skepticism is not based on first principles. So it's, it's not an ethical argument, even though I do think there are ethical arguments for that. A Alex mentioned some of these in his comments. My, my argument, though, sticking with kind of the approach taken in the book and, and, the, and coming at this as an economist, is that I think if we look both conceptually, but also in empirical evidence, you can't trust government to ever just do one thing. And what I mean by that is twofold. One is 
Anytime you think about complex systems and government in, intervenes in a complex system, there's always going to be unintended or intended consequences in some cases, unintended in others, or what the political scientist Robert Jervis calls system effects. It's just the nature of a complex system. You can never control everything in a way you can in a simple system. So that number one is always going to mean you kind of play whack-a-mole. Even if you hit the, the, the mole that pops up over here, five other moles are going to pop up over here, whether it's in the, in the present or years from now. But then on top of it, you have not just the, the epistemics or complexity, but the incentives. And that governments, when they do stuff, and everyone on this call knows this, on this in this conversation, it, it, other people just don't sit by the sidelines. They come out of the woodwork and, and all of a sudden it spirals very quickly into, into one thing spirals into five others. And so what, what do we see in other foreign interventions? Very little nuance, no appreciation of complexity, a series of effects that's long and variable. The U.S. intervention in Afghanistan in the late 70s to combat the Soviet Union led to the freedom fighters at the time, later led to the rise of, of the Taliban and everything that led to the subsequent intervention. What will happen five, 10 years from now? I don't know, but something will. But also, systematic deception is correlated with war throughout American history, but history and other, uh, if we look at other countries as well, there is the concealment of information. And that is intended to conceal information from the citizenry, both domestically and abroad. You get interest groups uh, that arise that perpetuate the conflict. You get mission creep, but you also get constant churn in the justifications. So I don't know if anyone saw this, but I, I read two, two op-ed pieces, one, one in the Washington Post and one at marketwatch.com. And both of them are now justifying the continuation of aid to Ukraine on the grounds of military Keynesianism. So, so the Washington Post article is titled, Ukraine's Aid's Best Kept Secret, Most of the Money Stays in the USA. And this article is talking about how these millions of dollars just flowing to create jobs domestically and benefiting not just members of the defense sector, but kind of blue collar workers who work in these tank factories. And isn't this wonderful? It's going to stimulate economic activity. And so you get these perpetuating cycles. Uh, and so where does this leave me and how can I connect this to, to the other points? Well, you know, Alex raised this wonderful point about the literature on anarchism and pacifism. And one strand of pacifism is, is what uh, is called practical pacifism. Uh, a philosopher by the name of Andrew Fiala is, is the kind of main contemporary proponent of this. And what he says is, again, he's coming at this from a, a, a philosopher's perspective, but I think there's wonderful overlap. He says, look, I, I recognize that there might be moments that we need to engage in protecting ourselves against threats, that we might need to defend ourselves, and, and we can't rule out the possibility of violence. But our, our, we, we should have a, a kind of default position to skepticism where there's a very high bar for when, when we justify that because of these dynamics. And at the end of the book, what the way I approach this is not through that lens, but I invoke the precautionary principle. And people usually invoke the precautionary principle to justify government regulation against kind of uh, uh, new innovations and technologies which might do irreparable harm. The idea being that if, if there's going to be something that generates irreparable harm, then we should default to a position of precaution, if you will, of uh, limiting it absent a significant pile or a significant kind of accumulation of evidence to the contrary. And what I argue in the book is we should apply the same logic to, to empire and war making. The burden of proof should be severely 
uh, or excuse me, significantly high. And we see just the opposite. I mean, if you think about Ukraine very quickly, what was the initial kind of reaction in America and elsewhere? Democracy versus authoritarianism. You're either on board or you're not. We need to support Ukraine no matter what in this fight against Russia, perhaps. But now what do we see? Well, you're starting to see reports of American and European officials beginning to publicly push the Ukrainian government saying, hey, you need to think about a peace deal with Russia now. You, you know, this funding's not going to be unlimited, which is my other reason I'm quite skeptical, which is that the way these kind of setups work is as the political winds change, as the new flavor of the month, which there always is internationally, comes to the forefront, very quickly people tend to forget these other interventions and, and what is required to actually carry them out. The final thing I just wanted to mention, and I, I appreciated all your comments about the the kind of liberal tradition, uh, very, one I'm very much familiar with, but very committed to. So I, I, I appreciated those comments. And, and you pointed out a, a number of people, William Graham Sumner, Adam Smith, and others who are quite skeptical. You know, I, I've been researching this lately with one of our graduate students, this tradition. And I, I did want to mention that there are people who actually took the opposite side in the liberal tradition. And, and so there are people like John Stuart Mill, Alexis de Tocqueville, actually, who are, are actually very strong proponents of colonization in certain instances. So both of them advocated for British colonization of India, French colonization in Algeria. And there are these tensions in that tradition. I, I think they're wrong about that advocacy. But there are those tensions historically that I think both exist as a matter of fact, but also are interesting to think about and study because it does, you know, these what, what they're wrestling with is the same kind of challenges you are raising, not so much the self-defense, but are there instances where people cannot left to their own devices get out of whatever kind of trap they're stuck in? And of course, as you fully know from your own writing and scholarship, the kind of modern iteration of this is the poverty trap and the development trap and can people get out of it? And they were wrestling with those ideas. Ginny, as you can imagine, I'm very much sympathetic to your comments. And, and uh, you know, I, I drew upon your work and your work with Virgil in making the arguments about uh, or some of the arguments in the book about markets and exchange and, 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 and peaceful social interaction. So I very much appreciated them. I, I did want to highlight two points. And again, I'm going to look for common themes here across across the, the comments. You know, to go to Alex's point, just to clarify my own position, and if it did come across like this in the book, I, I wasn't clear on this point. You know, I, I, I certainly am a fan of, of markets. By markets, I mean peaceful, voluntary interactions between human beings. But I don't think they're the end-all, be-all. And, and my own conception of development is not development in the raw, meaning output, meaning per capita GDP. I think, I think those things tell you something. But my own view on this is much broader and very much in line with, with economists like P.T. Bauer or in more contemporary terms, like Amartya Sen, who talks about this idea of development as freedom, which is the ability to live a flourishing life, which is not just accumulating stuff for the sake of more stuff is preferred to less. And from that standpoint, I, I certainly think markets can play a role, but I also think we need to give people space to figure out what that is for themselves and decide for themselves. And so my conception of development and freedom is, you know, some people might choose to live in small scale collective arrangements whereby they have very flat hierarchical, very flat structure. So it's not vertically integrated in terms of a vertical hierarchy. And uh, uh, that's wonderful. That's going to place some limits on what they can and can't do. 
Uh, you know, if you if you have that kind of arrangement, it's going to limit the what what Adam Smith called the extent of the market necessarily. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's people's choice. But giving them the freedom to do that, I think, is is quite powerful. And uh, from that standpoint, I very much value that point. The other th- point I took from from Ginny about people learning and discovering through exchange, you know, one of the the interesting shifts that I'd like to see made is that people tend to view international relations between nation states and, and nation states where they envision some conflict as kind of a prisoner's dilemma, zero or negative sum game. Like if China, right now it's if China doesn't get it or China gets it, America can't or Russia and America. And that's certainly one way of framing situations. But I wonder if, if in doing that, we neglect something called the perceptual dilemma. And the perceptual dilemma is the idea that there's a conflict situation, but the parties to the conflict would be open to cooperation. But they fear that if they communicate their willingness to cooperate, the other party will take advantage of it. And so it's a perceptual situation in that we're not stuck in a situation where we're going to end up in that defect quadrant as in the prisoner's dilemma. We might, but there's a possibility for cooperation if we can create the right perceptions. And one of the things I like about your work, Ginny, and Virgil's work, and this, this deeper understanding of markets beyond exchange in the raw, but all the stuff that is required for exchange on the front end, but also the values it cultivates, is that part of that is the perception as well. Is my the perception for me to act towards you a certain way, to value you a certain way as a human being? And to the extent we can foster those things, I think that it will foster social cooperation, which then leads me to the final point I wanted to raise, which I think cuts across all three comments, which is one of the things that I'm, a, you know, because people say, well, what, what, should, what should the American government do if, if, if you're laying out this vision, what can be done? I think that's the wrong way to think about things, but, but nonetheless, let me, let me suggest something. Because if someone said to me, well, what policies would you pass in order to fix it? Well, one way to view things is kind of the status quo, which is you look outward and you fix over there. That's the fixing weak and failed states, nation building that Bill was talking about earlier. But there's another way to view the world. You look inward and you look at things, what I call unblocking reforms, and you think to yourself, what barriers have been established that I control that are blocking human beings from interacting with each other? So if, if you weren't going to dump aid into Ukraine or wherever around the world and they say, well, what would you do? How about you allow people to move? How about you make every move that you can to unblock people, to allow them to have freedom of movement, freedom of trade, and so on? And there's so many barriers that are erected because of of governments and because of crony capitalism around the world that there's low-hanging fruit to remove those things. Now, they're difficult to remove because of political factors, of course, but that doesn't mean it's impossible. And moves that can reduce those barriers empower people to at least have more scope to make choices, to escape perhaps troubling or harmful situations they're in but also serves as an opportunity to promote the type of interactions which generate peaceful interactions and the type of values that, Bill, you were talking about, Jenny, that you were talking about, and, and Alex, what I took you to be talking about. And so the common theme I saw across all three commenters, was, a, which I share, is a deep conviction and commitment to individual dignity and looking for various arrangements, social, political, and economic which allow people 
to pursue those things that they want to pursue while also allowing others to pursue their, the things they want to pursue. And so from that standpoint, I very much valued the comments and also the fact that, that I appreciated that this unintended kind of thread that ran throughout them emphasizes the value of kind of an interdisciplinary approach to these, these topics and ones that, uh, that I'm very glad that there's people out in the world who are thinking about. So thank you all very much again. Uh, I'm very grateful for the opportunity to speak with you all. Great. Thank you all for the great comments. To our listeners, we hope you pick up Chris's book, In Search of Monsters to Destroy, but as well as the books of our commentators. And thank you for joining us with the podcast. Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. For more information about graduate student fellowship opportunities for students at Mason, as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. We hope you recommend students to our programs or consider applying yourself.